Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for April 21st, 2017. I'm your host, Brian Cardell. Happy to welcome you to another edition of our program. It's your source each Friday for commentary and insights from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on all things appellate law. This week's show regards quite a bit of procedure and also a couple of firsts. Newly confirmed Justice Neil Gorsuch's first day on the U.S. Supreme Court bench where he heard oral arguments in a class action securities appeal brought by the California agency charged with managing public employee pension funds. The second first, the state high court's clear enunciation that mandatory civil procedure rules and jurisdictional procedural rules are not the same thing. Both augur meaningfully for class action attorneys and civil practitioners generally. Professor David Engstrom of Stanford Law School joins the show first to discuss the SCOTUS case, California Public Employees Retirement System vs. ANZ Securities, Inc., which poses a class action procedure question, namely whether statutory time limits rightly bar putative class action plaintiffs who opt out of a class suit to pursue their claims individually, but who do so after the statute's time limit has run. Professor Engstrom explains why barring such suits counters standing precedent and would have the undesirable consequence of flooding district courts with putative class members' protective actions. He also discusses how Neil Gorsuch quickly got into the fray in his first day of oral argument and how Gorsuch's addition to the court might tip this case. Then, Adra Ibarra from the California Appellate Law Group will explain the important procedural development created by the Cal Supreme Court's ruling in Cabron v. Sharp Memorial Hospital from earlier this spring. In that ruling, the state high court clarified conflicting precedent to hold that mandatory procedural rules are different from jurisdictional ones, whereas prior case law had sometimes treated the two synonymously. The Supreme Court making this difference explicit means that objections to the former mandatory rules can be waived if not raised at trial. In this case, that meant a new trial motion, which was granted even though its supporting documents were untimely filed, was properly upheld, and the defendant first raised the timing issue on appeal. Ms. Ibarra unpacks this ruling and explains now that this distinction between mandatory and jurisdictional rules is official, just how civil law attorneys can discern the difference between the two, and what that difference might mean for their motions or appeals. Before we get to my guests, let me first remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available to listeners of the podcast. It's very simple. You can find a short true-false test that's linked on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Without any further preamble, then, I give you Professor David Engstrom from Stanford Law School talking about this week's oral argument in CalPERS vs. ANZ Securities. We welcome to the podcast now Professor David Engstrom, professor of law at Stanford Law School, whose work has appeared on the, uh, the pages and screens of, among others, the Stanford Law Review, the Yale Law Journal, the New York Times, Washington Post, and CNN and MSNBC, and who heads a, a cohort of professors who filed an amicus brief in the matter we'll discuss in just a moment. Professor Engstrom, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So now this case that we're going to discuss, the California Public Employees Retirement System versus ANZ Securities, um, argued before the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday, is noteworthy for a few reasons. As one of the, the very first opportunities that folks have had to, to see newly minted Associate Justice Neil Gorsuch apply his trade to, to get a sense of his judicial style and demeanor and um, see a, just a, a high court with, with nine justices for the first time in, in quite a while. Um, and obviously, the, the case itself presents an important question, a, a foundational one, not as the caption might suggest in securities law, but in, more in the, the realm of civil procedure. So we'll go ahead and, and unpack all that, maybe starting with what seems like a bit of a procedural quirk. How does this case with uh, Cal Public Employees Retirement System, CalPERS, um, as the petitioner uh, spring from the, the second rather than the, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals? 
So the CalPERS actually filed its lawsuit in California, uh, but the case was then quickly pushed into what's called the multi-district litigation MDL process. Uh, many lawyers will know that this is a process by which uh, a special court, the U.S. Judicial Panel on Multi-District Litigation, sends similar cases that are filed around the country to a single court. Uh, for pretrial proceedings. And so that was the case here. You had a lot of litigation, a lot of uh, plaintiff investors filing securities law claims uh, around the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Uh, and that case had been consolidated previously in the Second Circuit. So when CalPERS filed all the way out in California, the Northern District of California, I believe, just immediately sent the case to New York to be part of that MDL proceeding. Okay. And now eventually uh, CalPERS opted out of that putative class action as it, it went along and, and, and seemed to, to lag a bit um, and, and went to, to try the case on its own, CalPERS did. And that brings the question in this case as to whether essentially they, they were able to do that, whether in, in joining up with the, the class action and then trying to opt out of it after a particular statutory deadline, they, uh, they had their filing was then untimely. Is that the, the question that, w- that we have here? That's correct. Yeah. And and so it is a question of pure procedure then, the one that's rooted in some particular language in the federal securities laws. Uh, so in, in effect, Cowper's complaint was dismissed as time barred. And what it wants is the benefit of what's called a tolling rule that would pause the running of various limitation periods that are in the various securities laws. And, 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 and what they want then is to extend the time that they had to file their lawsuit. Okay, now this exact question hasn't been addressed by the U.S. Supreme Court, but but one somewhat similar to it has been, and it's a case that is mentioned in the the question presented, a 1974 case, uh, American Pipe Construction Company versus Utah. Um, what uh, what did that case decide? How does it um, bear on on the matter here? And I guess, or in what ways is it distinct from the case at, at issue here? So American Pipe is, is actually a fixture of modern class action doctrine. The case was decided in 1974, and it, it's, it's seen as a, as a very important part of class action doctrine. The case holds that we toll, or you can think of it as just pausing, the statute of limitations for putative class members. So these aren't um, named plaintiffs in the action. Rather, they're absent class members that could be part of a class if the class were to certify it. And so the case holds that we actually toll the statute of limitations while the court is making its decision on whether or not to certify the class action. And the point, I guess, is that the time the court takes to decide whether to certify a case as a class action shouldn't count against that plaintiff. Uh, especially in the event that class certification is denied, at which point uh, that plaintiff will only have uh, an individual action available to him or her or it um, in order to vindicate rights. So why is this important? Uh, the most important reason is we don't want to cut off rights uh, of any plaintiff just because the court took a long time to get to a decision. So that's obviously an important animating principle within American Pipe. Um, but relatedly, I think it's important to think about what would happen without a tolling rule in place um, that told limitations periods, time limitations periods um, during the, the, the time that the court is trying to make a decision on class certification. Uh, you can put yourself in the minds of, of one of those putative uh, class members, one of those putative plaintiffs. Uh, if the statute of limitations is about to expire, and the, the court still hasn't ruled yet on class certification, then a smart plaintiff uh, and a putative member of the class 
would be wise to file what's sometimes referred to as a protective action in order to preserve their rights. In effect, they want to get a timestamp on their action to make sure it's within the statute of limitations. Um, and so this is a second reason why the American pipe rule is, is such a fixture of modern class action doctrine. It, it both risks cutting off the rights of plaintiffs, uh, but it also creates a separate risk, which is that without tolling, we might just get lots of these protective actions, lots of extra lawsuits that are entirely unnecessary and indeed might not be filed at all if the court ultimately goes on to, to grant class certification in the case. Sure, because as you say, if the court grants certification, then the, the complaint that goes forward would resemble pretty much identically the those protective actions that would be filed. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, now, that case, as you say, deals with statutes of limitations. And important here, the statutory provision we're talking about um, deals with a, a statute of repose, which I, I suppose American Pipe doesn't necessarily speak to. What, um, what What's the difference between those two uh, statutory animals? What's the difference between a statutory of limitation and a statute of repose? And why is that important here? So the respondents say there's a big difference. Uh, obviously, the petitioners here say there's no difference at all, that this tolling rule, this American pipe tolling rule should apply both to statutes of, statutes of limitation and statutes of repose. So let me let me step back for a second then in trying to explain the difference between the two types of provisions. Um, uh, virtually all the federal securities causes of action, you know, there are a couple major federal securities law statutes, but uh, virtually all the federal securities causes of action have a two-tiered time bar in place. Uh, one tends to be a shorter limitations period. It's sometimes referred to as a statute of limitations, and it tends to be governed by a discovery rule. That is to say, the clock starts to run uh, or the or the limitations period starts to run when the plaintiff knew about or should have known about the injury. Um, that's the one that's the first tier. The, the second tier is uh, sometimes referred to as a statutory statute of repose. And this is generally a longer limitations period. And it runs from the violation, not uh, from uh, it's not a discovery rule. It's not when the plaintiff knew or should have known about it. Um, the two types of time limitations then are worded differently. So statutes of limitations, the first type, the kind that was at issue in um, American Pipe itself, says that, you know, a plaintiff may not file an action more than five years after she knew or should have known about the injury. Okay. Statutes of repose have a different set of, uh, a different phrasing. Uh, statutes of repose say, in no event shall plaintiffs file an action after 10 years. Um, and the, you know, the respondents in this case are saying that that makes uh, uh, an important difference um, for reasons I, I think that will become clear as we talk more about what the court did in this case. Finishing up on the procedural posture here, we've mentioned that the Cowper's complaint was deemed untimely by, by the lower courts, the, the district court, and that was affirmed by the Second Circuit. Uh, what was their, their reasoning? And uh, as I understand that this creates a, a circuit split on the question, correct? Yeah, that's that is correct. Um, so the first thing to note here is that the Second Circuit, uh, in this case, really just applied an earlier decision in a case called IndyMac. And interestingly, that case went up to the Supreme Court a few years ago on the precise same question, whether American pipe tolling applies to statutes of repose in the federal securities laws. But the, then the case was digged. It was dismissed as improvidently granted because one of the main defendants in the case um, I believe it was Goldman Sachs, 
settled out and so that the the court no longer thought it had a sharp form of the controversy in front of it. Um, so in IndyMac, uh, the Second Circuit said that American pipe tolling doesn't apply to these statutes of repose in the federal securities laws. And its main reason was that statutes of repose uh, are, are are different because of their wording and so can't be subject to American pipe, which is an equitable rule of tolling. And so, you know, lawyers know that equi equitable usually means something that comes from the court's inherent powers and its ability to police the fairness of a process. And in IndyMac, uh, the Second Circuit said, look, statutes of repose are different. They extinguish claims outright. Uh, they are supposed to provide some sort of finality and comfort to a defendant. And so they shouldn't be subject to this kind of fairness analysis that would be entailed in deciding whether an equitable tolling doctrine and uh, I take it the Tenth Circuit has held on this question sort of the, the opposite? Yep. The Tenth Circuit uh, had a case uh, that was actually a few years before NEMAC, and they came out uh, in the exact opposite way. So they said American pipe tolling, an equitable rule, applies in full even to these statutes of repose, even though they have a slightly different wording and may be motivated by a slightly different purpose. As we noted at the top, you submitted a, an amicus brief in support of the petitioners here. I'd be curious to know how this case got your attention and why you feel like it's an, an important one enough to, to merit your group's attention. So it's a securities case at bottom, so it's not really within my area of substantive expertise, but it uh, is a case that has lots of procedural implications, especially for Rule 23, the part of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure that govern class actions. And my own view is that Rule 23 has been under assault for some time, and, and, and the courts have really moved to narrow Rule 23 and the operations of class actions without thinking hard enough, I think, about the effect uh, that their rulings have on lots of different types of plaintiffs. So I think it's inherently important uh, to ensure that courts and, and the Supreme Court are getting to the right answer on how we interpret and implement Rule 23. Okay, then maybe digging into your brief a bit, um, you, you contend that the, the American pipe rule is correct and it should apply in this instance and that the, the Second Circuit was incorrect to, to cabinet or curtail it to, to only reach statutes of limitations. Um, in making this argument, you, you stress principally uh, that policy concern we've spoken a bit about that curtailing that American pipe rule would create some judicial inefficiencies by incentivizing and encouraging folks to file lots of protective actions. Um, to, to make this case, you, in fact, create a study. Could you explain a bit more about the uh, judicial efficiency argument that you present and uh, how your, your study supports it? Sure. I can I can start by just restating what you said, which is there's this huge empirical question that overhangs this case, which is just how many of these protective filings uh, can we expect were the Supreme Court to affirm the second court's ruling and thereby render American pipe tolling inapplicable to these statutes of repose across the entire country? And it's a big empirical question. It came up multiple times in argument. Uh, it's all over the briefs in the case, both the party briefs uh, as well as uh, amicus briefs. And so um, I decided to grab hold of some data, and I frankly did this uh, back when the IndyMac case first went up to the Supreme Court. And I built a small data set that can help us to understand what we, what we think the flow of protective filings uh, might be. And, and here's what, here's what I did. Um, I, uh, I, I collected data on all securities class actions filed during a particular 
time period. Now, this was before the Second Circuit first held that the American pipe tolling rule doesn't apply to statutes of repose. So this is historical data, but I used it to generate an estimate of uh, what I think the, the, the maximum possible flow of, of protective filings uh, could be. And so here's what I did. It's very much an upper bound analysis. I asked the following question. Uh, in what percentage of securities class action cases in which the court gets to a decision on class certification, is it the case that the statute of repose has already run such that a wise plaintiff, one of those putative class members who wanted to protect her rights in case the, the, the court decided not to certify the class, would still be able to pursue her rights via her own lawsuit, would still be able to get that time stamp uh, on uh, a complaint so as to not be time barred. Um, I ask a second question then is uh, then which is that as a proportion of all filed securities class actions, right? Not just those in which a court reaches a decision on class certification. Um, in how many of those cases would it be the case that uh, a plaintiff or a putative class member needed to file one of these class actions in order to avoid being time barred if he or she uh, wanted to subsequently pursue her rights in a separate action? So the answer that I get to then by looking at this historical data and actually calculating for every single case when the, the statutes of statute of repose would have expired, um, my finding is that it's actually quite a lot of cases. Um, more specifically, um, half or more of the cases reaching a decision on class certification had the potential for producing one of these protective filings. That is to say, one or more putative class members would have been facing um, uh, the expiration of the statute of repose before the court reached a decision on class certification. Uh, and similarly, I find that roughly a quarter to a third of all filed cases um, uh, have that situation. And so if we extrapolate those estimates out to the total number of securities class actions filed over the past couple of decades, that's literally thousands of cases that we can think of as protective filing eligible, where there was a party who would have needed to make one of these protective filings. Just to put a slightly finer point on this, you, you indicate that your estimations might actually be fairly conservative and the number of protective cases might in fact be, be higher because of uh, a few different dynamics. Why do you say that? First, I should note that my estimates are actually not conservative in, in one sense. I noted that they're an upper bound analysis. They're kind of a worst case scenario, right? Okay. What would what would be the total flow of, of, of possible filings if every single putative class member facing a, a, the expiration of a statute of repose had made one of these protective filing. So I, I think that's I think that's important to note. Um, in the brief, then I say, look, as an upper bound estimate, this, uh, you know, these numbers might actually be conservative. And the reasons are complicated. I might refer listeners to the brief for that. But, um, you know, one reason is that even after successful certification of a class action, we might expect at least some putative class members to make protective filings. If they're worried that the litigation, even after being certified as a class, won't give them full compensation for their claim. So I guess my point is, uh, you know, the point I try to make to the court and that, um, you know, my fellow Miki and I make to the to the court is that, look, it's already this this upper bound analysis. It's already this worst case scenario. But I guess the, the important point is that there are reasons to believe that the, 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 the worst case scenario might be even worse than I make it out to be. Now, now, one counterargument that you identify, and it's certainly also posed in briefs by the opposite side here, is that hypothetical modeling and the use of historical data um, that you, you bring to bear isn't, might not be necessary because we actually have true data 
um, from the time of that IndyMac ruling to till now, where in the Second Circuit, the American pipe rule has been cabinet, has been been trimmed down, doesn't apply to statute of repose. And so we can take a look in those intervening years and see if, in fact, in reality, there has been a spike in in protective filings and if that judicial efficiency argument actually has much merit. Uh, but you say that it's, it's not great to, to rely on those few intervening years um, with uh, the data set they might provide. Why, why do you say that? So this is the second part of the brief. After I do this worst case scenario empirical analysis, I then uh, take issue with some studies that the respondents are pointing to in their briefs. Uh, in, in their efforts to make the argument that we should, shouldn't expect very many of these protective filings at all. And here's, here's the problem with those studies. Um, those studies, uh, look at securities class actions that reached a settlement, uh, so only successful ones, uh, and they find that only about 3% of those cases produced opt-out actions. Now, opt-out actions are actions in which a big institutional investor rejects the settlement and decides to, to file its own case. And uh, what I try to do in the second part of the brief is to point out that this is actually a bad measure of of, um, of potential protective filings on a, on a couple of counts. Um, one should be pretty obvious, which is it's only looking at successful cases. It's only keying the analysis to cases that went on to produce you know, positive dollar settlements. And it's also looking uh, at filings only around a fairly tight time band uh, around those settlements. But the reality is we can expect protective filings in all kinds of cases, uh, and we can expect them any time that the statute of repose is, is about to expire. Um, there's a more important reason why I think this is actually a really unreliable way to try to gauge the, the likely flow of these protective filings. And, and that is that, um, and this is what I try to show in, in detail in the brief, that we can't really study the actual effect of the Second Circuit's decision way back in IndyMac five years ago on the likely flow of protective filings yet, right? If we were, if we, you know, put on a social scientist hat, you know, ideally, if we were going to design a perfect study, we would isolate securities class actions filed before and after the Second Circuit first decided that this American pipe tolling rule doesn't apply to statutes of repose. But here's the problem. We can't do that here because even though that IndyMac decision goes back a few years, its decision is still too recent. And so something I try to point out in the brief is that um, in many or even most of the cases filed since the Second Circuit's first uh, decision, right, that IndyMac decision, the statute of repose still has not yet expired as to many or most of the putative class members. So the point is that in these cases that have been filed since IndyMac, um, there are actually large numbers of putative class members who don't yet have the incentive to make any of those protective filings. So in other words, I guess the, the studies that look at opt-out actions, they too are in a sense based on historical data. They can't take account yet of this change in the legal rule. Now, um, that's half the brief. I think it's an incredibly important point um, that we just can't do anything like a rigorous study yet. It leaves out too many um, too many parties that might wanna that might wanna make these protective filings. What I didn't love at argument, frankly, is that that Paul Clement told the court that my amici, my fellow amici, and I filed the exact same brief as we did before uh, in IndyMac, right? The case that got digged, and, and that's just patently false. My brief does the same worst case scenario empirical analysis as it did before, but then there's a whole new second half to the brief where I show that this is actually
actually the best, most rigorous way we can try to get in an estimate of the flow of protective filings, precisely because IndyMac, even though it's several years old, is still too new to give us any real purchase on, um, you know, on, on this important question. Just teasing out the, the conclusion of your brief, dealing with policy considerations, roughly speaking in, in balancing terms, one result brings about these effects, and then those are weighed against how the opposite result will bring about different effects. You know that essentially there's, on the other side of this argument, there isn't any true benefit raised by, by curtailing the, that American pipe rule. Um, what, what exactly are the benefits that are championed by your opposite side, by the respondents here for capping that rule? And why do you not find them uh, convincing? I think they're very thin, the benefits, and that's why I think that um, the respondents in both IndyMac and, and in the CalPERS case uh, have not spent much time on them. I think the idea is that uh, maybe the defendants in these cases can glean some important information from protective actions. They might know how many motivated plaintiffs there are out there, um, and that this may give them a sense of their total liability and total exposure uh, in a way that can inform the litigation and, and the negotiation of settlements. Uh, I don't buy it. Um, you know, the, there, there's very little uh, uncertainty in securities fraud cases about potential liability. The reason is that large investors who make really large uh, securities purchases, they have to report those purchases uh, to the to the SEC. Um, and so there's actually quite a good record uh, of who the big plaintiffs might be who could opt out. So I'm not sure that we need some sort of proof positive that they want to pursue their claims. I think any defendant in a large securities fraud action can very easily calculate their total exposure and their total potential liability. Now, your brief is obviously, a, it's, a, it's pretty policy-centered here, but unsurprisingly, one of the questions leveled by the new justice, Neil Gorsuch, was, was text-based, digging into the statute itself. And when he noted that its plain language is clear, the statute of repose says no action can be brought after a certain time. And he asked the petitioner's counsel, with that being the case, why the court really needs to even wade into policy concerns um, if the, the plain language is clear. What uh, Had you been in the well there on Monday, would your response have been to Justice Gorsuch? Well, so I think it's I think it's important to to, to maybe try to specify what's going on here. Uh, I think the justices are disagreeing on how, and the parties are disagreeing on how to define the word action as it appears in that statute of repose. And um, you know, on the one hand, if action uh, is defined to mean a claim, uh, and this is what petitioners would like, then Cowper's arguably hasn't filed a new action at all. In a sense, they can just piggyback on or, or relate back to that original action. Uh, and so there might not be a new action at all that could be cut off by a statute of, of, of repose. Um, but I think that Justice Gorsuch um, and the respondents are, are pressing a, a different definition of action. They, they think action means lawsuit. Uh, and if so, then what CalPERS filed is plainly new within the meaning of the statute of repose. And, uh, and so if, uh, if American pipe tolling doesn't apply, then, you know, that new action has been filed too late. So it did reveal, I think, what everyone knew, which is that, um, uh, Justice Gorsuch, uh, is going to, uh, favor a kind of textualism, uh, I think, uh, that um, was previously championed by uh, Justice Scalia before his passing. Um, 
you know, as to how I would have responded in the well, I have to confess that I haven't actually studied this part of the case carefully. And so I'm actually disinclined to offer a view. The one thing I do know is that, that maybe the more conventional reading of action is as a lawsuit, uh, not as a claim. I think my, I, I, my understanding is that that has, uh, that's the interpretive gloss that's been given to the term, to the term in, um, in, in far more contexts. And so, I suspect that respondents may get the better of the argument here. It seems like an interesting dynamic if you have a, an amicus brief in a pending case before the U.S. Supreme Court over these past few months, um, as you just don't know whether or if there will be uh, an odd number of justices hearing your case and who that ninth justice, if there is one, might be. Um, what was that waiting like? Um, what impacts do you anticipate having a ninth justice and it being Justice Gorsuch have uh, upon upon this matter? I would think that it had a fairly limited impact. I think um, after the election in November, it was clear that a Supreme Court justice was going to get sat very quickly. Uh, that also means that uh, the court had available to it the ability to hold off on cases. And frankly, the Supreme Court did kick argument in some cases into the fall. They, they kind of um, they, they delayed quite a bit of their proceedings in anticipation of, of a new justice. Um, if it did have an impact, it probably had an impact on uh, parties filing merits briefs. I mean, that's where you're doing a lot of justice math and, and, and trying to, you know, carve around um, things that justices have said in the past in order to build, uh, you know, a majority for your position. Uh, and so, you know, sophisticated Supreme Court practitioners surely do a fair bit of that. It had no effect on what I was doing. I was uh, I was trying to help the court to see some of the empirical stakes uh, of their, you know, of, of the different positions in the case. And so, um, I, I guess I didn't, you know, had, had I known or not known who the ninth justice was going to be, I'm not sure it would have altered my analysis one bit. Speaking of past language of the Supreme Court, one core of the argument, um, that the respondents give is that these statutes of repose are very strict. And I think in some recent SCOTUS precedent, they were referred to as absolute bars on, on actions. Um, you know, that language obviously makes these things sound, uh, this sounds like a pretty bright line situation. Why, in your opinion, is the statute of propose, I guess we sort of talked about it, but not the absolute bar it's been described as um, in past cases? Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I, I think it's an argument, uh, uh, but and, and, you know, I guess I understand that the contours of it, statutes of repose are, are supposed to give repose, they're supposed to give peace to defendants so they can continue their lives, rain, arrange their affairs, um, you know, make capital investments without the threat of continued litigation and repose is an incredibly important value within any legal system. But I guess I find it a little hard to understand here, maybe for reasons that sound in something I, I already said, you know, where a class action has been filed uh, already in a securities fraud case, it's not like the defendant should be surprised to learn that their individual plaintiffs who are part of the putative class who might want to pursue their rights if the class action goes sideways. And so in that sense, it's not like these, it's not like there's an injury to the repose interests of these parties. It's not like they're being arrested from a sense that the dust has finally settled on their case and now they can go on with their lives. They're on notice throughout that they're fielding claims uh, in courts uh, because of alleged bad acts. So uh, I guess I, I think there's a slightly awkward fit in terms of repose here. You know, I could point out other things too, which is, uh, sure, we may want to emphasize the repose rights or the importance of repose for the defendants. You know, but plaintiffs have rights to redress as, uh, have rights to redress as well. 
Um, and, uh, and so I noted way back when, when we were talking about, you know, the American pipe case that, you know, part of the concern here is that you cut off the rights of plaintiffs and that, that's, that's an interest as well. And that's a, that, that implicates values that, that may matter to us. Uh, there's a final interest here, which is the interests of the federal courts. Um, you know, a flood of protective filings makes judges' jobs a lot more difficult. And any time you add to judicial dockets, there's an opportunity cost. Judge or judges are going to have less time to adjudicate other types of cases, uh, be they contract disputes between businesses or um, you know, cases in which plaintiffs are claiming violations of civil rights. And I, so I think there are a lot of competing interests here. And it's, it's, it's not clear to me why the interests or the values that we would attach to repose should somehow trump these other values. One last one to, to close from the sense that you got um, from the arguments on Monday. Do you, you have any thoughts as to, to which side of this uh, case got the, the more favorable year from the, from the justices? I, you know, if I had to predict, I would say that we're, we're looking at um, uh, an affirmance of the Second Circuit's position. Um, uh, you know, just 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 reading tea leaves, I think, um, uh, you know, for starters, I think uh, Justice Gorsuch was pushing his, his textual claim uh, pretty hard. Uh, I should also note that Justice Gorsuch is on record as saying that um, securities class actions are a bit of a racket. Now, I think that's way too simplistic uh, in any litigation regime. There are always good and bad claims and good and bad actors. Uh, and that is surely the case in the in the context of securities um, fraud class actions. Um, but I, I worry that the combination makes his vote very clear. Uh, and so I would... Um, uh, I, I think that bodes badly for petitioners here. Maybe this leads to a, to a bigger point, which is, you know, as with lots of cases involving procedure and civil procedure in particular, you know, the, the case is, is really a referendum on litigation. So those who support petitioners are likely to see this kind of litigation as an imperfect but a, but a very necessary regulatory tool. Um, necessary because government agencies and prosecutors can't possibly enforce everything themselves nowadays in the modern regulatory state. They just don't have the resources, and, and so we need these private attorneys general to do it. Um, those who support respondents, though, are inclined to see um, lots of excess and waste and bad faith in litigation regimes. And so as with a lot of civil procedure cases, uh, I think there are, there are going to be those kinds of atmospherics uh, overhanging the, the 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 analysis and the result. Yeah, those are some some pretty weighty equities that certainly seem to to bump up against one another uh, pretty often in, in courts and particularly the high court over the last few years. Um, so we'll, we'll see which uh, which prevails this time around. Uh, Professor David Engstrom, thanks so much for being on the podcast to uh, unpack this with us. Appreciate it. Thank you. And that was Professor David Engstrom, Stanford Law School, chatting about the oral arguments heard before SCOTUS in CalPERS versus ANZ Securities earlier this week. We'll move now to my discussion with Andre Ibarra, the California Appellate Law Group, and the California Supreme Court's distinguishing between procedural and mandatory rules and what that means for civil practitioners. We're very happy to welcome to the podcast now Ms. Audra Ibarra, counsel with the California Appellate Law Group, a boutique appellate firm up in San Francisco. Ms. Ibarra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Brian. 
course. So you submitted to the Daily Journal a column about a recent clarification in, in California law in the context of civil procedure, and particularly in the context of motions for a new trial and the, the timely filing of the affidavits that uh, go along with them. This clarification was uh, made by the California Supreme Court in a case called Cabron v. Sharp Memorial Hospital. Um, so Go ahead and, and discuss, as you did in your column, the implications of, of this case and its ruling, and we'll lay out the statutory context first. Obviously, the motions for a new trial are governed by a few sections of the Code of Civil Procedure. One particular section of the Code of Civil Procedure that is being regarded most squarely, that's CCP Section 659A, but that exists among a, a couple of other sections which will be discussed in the ruling, and we'll, we'll be chatting about 659 and 660. So um, starting off, what does uh, 659A provide for? Um, Section 659A controls the timing for when a party can file a brief, an affidavit, or document supporting its motion for new trial. Generally, a party must file and serve these documents within 10 days of the filing of its notice of motion, but this deadline may be extended uh, for 10 more days by the court for good cause. And that's, as you mentioned, the statute at issue in this case. The issue is, of course, whether it's jurisdictional or not. The other two statutes um, that are are frequently referenced in this case are Section 659, which controls the timing for when a party can file a motion for a new trial. Under Section 659, subsection A2, a notice for motion for new trial um, has to be filed within a certain time frame. And that section, Section 659, which controls the notice, um, has long been held to be jurisdictional, meaning if it, if a party doesn't file its notice for motion for new trial by a certain time, um, it can never be raised again and the court can't decide it. Um, the other statute that this court uh, talks about in its ruling is section 660 and that controls when a court can rule on a motion for new trial. Um, the court must decide a motion for new trial, um, within a certain period of time and, um, if it doesn't make that decision, on the new trial within this specified time in the statute, then the, the then the um, uh, motion for new trial is deemed denied automatically, um, and that that deadline has also been held to be jurisdictional. And I'll get into the specifics of those all three statutes as we discuss, but I just want to lay out um, kind of the statutory framework uh, that we're talking about: two jurisdictional statutes, Section 659 and Section 660. And then the question is, is Section 659A, which comes in between them, also jurisdictional? Sure. Getting into how those statutes apply in the case here, let's talk about what's going on. Who uh, who was the plaintiff here? What and what was the what was the suit? And the uh, the jury reached a verdict. What was that verdict? So it's a sad story. Uh, the plaintiff was Mr. Cabron, who was a patient at Sharp Memorial Hospital, and he had had an operation, and he sued the hospital for malpractice. Um, alleging that the hospital committed negligence during his post-operative stay, which caused him spinal shock and ultimately quadriplegia. Um, after the trial, the jury returned a special verdict, finding that the hospital was negligent, but that the negligence did not cause the patient's quadriplegia. Now, obviously, we're dealing with a motion for a new trial here, so one was was filed. What, uh, on what basis did the plaintiff move for a new trial? What was the, the ruling on that motion, and then what? Uh, which, what are the, the timing issues involved that come into uh, come into play on appeal? So after the verdict, um, Mr. Cabron died, unfortunately, and his autopsy called into question the jury's uh, causation determination. And remember, the jury had said, "Yeah, the hospital's negligent, but it didn't cause uh, Mr. Cabron's uh, quadriplegia." So the widow Cabron um, substituted in as plaintiff and filed a timely 
notice of motion for new trial based on the new evidence. Um, and then she submitted a brief and expert affidavits, but failed to pay the requisite filing fee, at least initially. And when she finally did pay the fee for those documents, um, the brief and affidavits were filed after the statutory deadline. And remember, um, the statutory deadline is con controlled by CCP six, Section 659A, which allows for 10 days after the notice of motion for filing of these documents, and then with good cause, 10 more days. But this was filed after that. Nevertheless, uh, despite the late filing of those documents, uh, the court issued a timely order for a new trial based on the affidavits. So now the, the defendants here, Sharp Memorial Hospital, appeal that grant of the new trial motion. What was their contention and what did the, the Court of Appeal rule? So the hospital challenged the um, ruling in the trial court on the new trial motion uh, for two reasons. First, it said that the court was wrong on the merits. Second, it said that the trial court was wrong to consider the untimely affidavits. The Fourth District Court of Appeal affirmed on the merits and rejected the hospital's new jurisdictional argument. Um, and as I mentioned, it was arguing for the first time that the affidavits had been late, that the statutory deadline was jurisdictional, and that the resulting new trial order is void. Um, the Court of Appeal found that the hospital had waived those arguments uh, by not raising them in the trial court. Sure, right. We should definitely flag that so that, uh, as you say, was the first time the hospital raised those arguments was on appeal, that jurisdictional question. They did not contend at the trial court that uh, the affidavit should be barred for, for being untimely. Correct. Uh, so now, as you note in your in your column, the California Supreme Court has not had a chance to address squarely this specific question before, but I understand as you write, that there is some case law on the books about it. What uh, was the, the precedent, I think, at uh, Court of Appeals precedent that exists on this question? So the Third District Court of Appeal previously held that a court cannot order a new trial based on an untimely affidavit in Erickson v. Uh, Wiener. It's a 1996 case. In that case, the court believed that since uh, Section 659A includes a limited extension of time for good cause, remember the, the 10 days, uh, it believed that that extension, that extended deadline must be mandatory or jurisdictional. And it used the words mandatory or jurisdictional. Right. And then in its opinion in, in Cabran, uh, Justice Liu writing for the majority writes that, uh, that that Erickson court improperly sort of sets up those two terms as, as synonyms, jurisdictional and mandatory. And he also notes that the California Supreme Court has done the same in in the past occasionally. Um but he says that's wrong. It's improper to treat those terms as, as synonyms, jurisdictional and mandatory. Why is that improper? How are they different? And, and what is the legal significance of that difference as it plays out here? Um, good question. So without jurisdiction, a court lacks power to decide a case at any time. Um, and that that lack of jurisdiction can be raised at any time. Um, and so failure to comply with a jurisdictional rule cannot be be excused ever, but failure to comply with a mandatory non-jurisdictional rule may be excused by waiver or forfeiture depending on the facts. So um, as Judge uh, Justice Liu says, um, just jurisdictional rules are mandatory, but mandatory rules are not necessarily jurisdictional. I'll, I'd like to explain a little bit. Non-compliance with a mandatory but non-jurisdictional rule, like a statute of limitations, which people are familiar with, which like govern when a case can be filed, how long after an incident a case can be filed, um, can result in invalidation um, if non-compliance is properly raised by objection. So if you say, hey, this case is filed too late, 
the court could throw it out if you raise that objection at the right time. But noncompliance with a mandatory rule, such as the statute of limitations, can also be explicitly waived or forfeited by failure to object. So if if somebody files a case too late um, in the trial court, but nobody says anything and the case goes along all the way to the court of appeal, you can't raise the, the fact that the case was filed too late um, then in the court of appeal. By contrast, uh, the court found and again, quoting Justice Liu, noncompliance with a jurisdictional rule cannot be excused or forfeited. A party, end quote, a party can raise um, it for any time on appeal or collateral attack, and a court may raise it sua sponte. So if there is something that is, if there's a jurisdictional defect uh, that will make it such that the court should not hear this case at all, um, that can be raised at any time, even if, it, even if um, the party doesn't do it, the court can do it itself. Sure. Okay, so an important distinction, obviously, the fact then that the hospital raised this argument for the first time on appeal wouldn't be a big problem if we're talking about a jurisdictional rule. So after clarifying that point, Justice Lee moves on to address whether the section is jurisdictional or not, and he decides that, it, or the court decides that it is not. How How is the conclusion reached? Justice Lee makes three main points. First, um, he says that jurisdiction is generally presumed unless it's specified specifically curtailed by the legislature. In this case, the court found the text of Section 659A does not reveal a clear legislative intent to deprive the courts of the power to consider untimely filed affidavits. The statute is not usually emphatic about its time limit, and unlike Section 659 uh, uh, on the deadline to file a notice for motion for new trial and Section 60. 660 on a deadline for the court to make an order on a motion for new trial, Section 659A, which concerns Supporting documents for a motion for a new trial contains no consequence or penalty uh, for noncompliance with the deadlines, uh, nor does Section 659A reiterate its cutoff date in different ways throughout the statute uh, the way other statutes do. The second point that Justice Liu made is that the timing of Section 659A is independent of Section 659 and 660C meaning that the fact that the deadlines of Section 659 and 660C, which as we talked about bookend <laughs> the statute at issue in this case, the fact that they're jurisdictional uh, may suggest that the deadline in Section 659A is also jurisdictional if all the deadlines form an interconnecting scheme. But in this case, the court found that the jurisdictional time limits in Section 659 and 660C are in no way dependent or affected by the timing of the affidavit uh, submissions under Section 659A. And the final point Justice Liu made is that a statute's purpose may also show whether its time limit is meant to be jurisdictional. Uh, the court found that because Section 659 and 660 dictate when litigation over a new trial motion may begin and when it must end, those deadlines are strictly enforced as jurisdictional. Again, we're talking about bookending. Um, but the court found that Section 659A uh, where the purpose is to provide adequate time and flexibility for the parties to submit their supporting documents is not uh, jurisdictional because the parties uh, can make other arrangements on timing um, other than the, that what the statute specifically provides. Just to, to be clear exactly of the, the reach of this decision, obviously a, a, a non-movement in the new trial context could still successfully exclude untimely filed um, affidavits based on 659A, there's that that uh, objection must be filed at the trial court, correct? Uh, and so the upshot is such objections, such objections can be waived. They're not brought. They can't be raised for the first time on appeal. On appeal. 
Yes, that is correct. Um, a party opposing a new trial motion can make a motion to exclude a late brief, a late affidavit, or a supporting document in the trial court, or it can even make this argument on the appeal itself if the party has a good excuse to avoid forfeiture of the issue. So, for example, if the party did not know of the filing of the untimely, uh, the filing was untimely until until the appeal, that was not the case here because uh, the court had stamped the deadline, uh, stamped the documents with um, a date that showed that it was after the filing deadline. So they couldn't claim that here. But if that had been the case, um, they might have argued that they had an exception um, to get uh, an excuse to get around the forfeiture rule. Okay, so as we wrap up here, what, what in your opinion are the most important things for, for attorneys to, uh, to take on board here, especially uh, trial attorneys that are either making a motion or, or defending a motion for, for a new trial? That's a great question. So a party seeking or an attorney seeking a motion uh, for new trial must be mindful of the filing deadlines and fees because, remember, in this case, um, the documents were submitted to the court on time, but the fees weren't paid, and therefore it couldn't actually be filed on time. So under Section 659, the party must notice its motion before entry of judgment or if after judgment 15 days of the mailing, within 15 days of the mailing or the service of the notice of entry of judgment or within 180 days of the judgment, whichever is earliest. If the party misses this filing deadline, the court will not have jurisdiction to hear the motion, meaning that's it. The party can't make the motion and the court can't decide it. Um, moreover, under six, Section 659A, which was the heart of, of the Cabron decision, the moving party must file its brief and any affidavits within 10 days, which for good cause could be extended to 20 days of its notice. If the party, miss, uh, if the party misses this filing deadline, the court um, still will have jurisdiction to hear the motion under Cabron, but the court need not consider the untimely submissions if it doesn't want to. On the other hand, a party or um, a lawyer seeking to avoid a new trial motion must also be mindful of deadlines. In addition to those I've already discussed, um, Section 660, under Section 660, the court must decide the motion for a new trial in less than 60 days of the mailing or the service of the notice of entry of judgment, whichever is earliest, or if uh, there is no notice of judgment given um, in less than 60 days of the first notice of motion for a new trial. If the court misses this decision deadline, the motion for new trial is deemed automatically denied. When a moving party or the court is late, um, e um, either on uh, the moving party making the motion, by that I mean um, filing the notice of the motion, um, or filing its supporting papers, or the court is late in filing its uh, decision, um, the opposing party should object at the earliest opportunity. Although an untimely notice of motion or untimely new trial order may be challenged at any time because the deadlines are jurisdictional, um, the noncompliance with the deadline uh, for a brief or an affidavit may be waived and forfeited under Cabron, and so it may be can actually be considered on its merits. Maybe zooming out just a bit outside of the, the context of the motion for new trial, imagine that the clarification here from the court that jurisdictional and mandatory rules are different, those terms should not be treated synonymously, um, will have some importance to attorneys going forward. How significant is that clarification? So in uh, the trial court, it's important to argue, if possible, that a rule is jurisdictional. I mean, you always want to argue if something's mandatory or jurisdictional because you want to make sure that the rule is followed. Uh, but to, if you can stress that it's actually not just mandatory but jurisdictional, it's important because it signifies that there's no way around it. Um, Noncompliance can't be excused. 
um, on appeal and collateral attack, the distinction between mandatory and jurisdictional is even more important uh, because if the party didn't raise it below and there's ex- no excuse for them raising it below um, and it's only a mandatory rule as opposed to a jurisdictional rule, the party can't raise it on appeal or collateral attack for the first time. But if it's jurisdictional, like we've discussed um, throughout our conversation, it can be raised at any time. Um, so more broadly, if um, on appeal or collateral attack, um, in a case of first impression, when a party wants to argue a deadline is jurisdictional, Cabron suggests, and Justice Liu's analysis suggests, that a party should show three things. One, that the statute is unusually emphatic about the time limit. For example, the statute reiterates the cutoff date in different ways throughout the statute or includes a consequence for noncompliance. Two, uh, that other jurisdictional deadlines are dependent on the deadline in this particular statute. And three, the purpose of the statute suggests that it's jurisdictional. On the other hand, if a party wants to argue that a deadline is only mandatory and therefore excusable, waivable, and forfeitable, um, the party should argue the opposite. Okay, well, uh, certainly a lot of important considerations there. Ms. Audra Ibarra, thanks very much for walking, uh, walking through them with us. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me on. And with that, our program for April 21st is complete. Thanks so much for tuning in, and thanks very much to both of my guests, Professor David Engstrom and Audra Ibarra. I'm Brian Cardow. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.